We're going to be looking at the first seven verses. We just finished looking at Apollos, and, and, and it's interesting what all is taking place here right now. Uh, Acts chapter 19, though. It says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have we received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said unto, and they said unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, Well, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying, Unto the people they should believe on him that should come after him, and that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid, ha- laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I ask your blessing upon the service this morning. I pray that you be glorified and honored. Please help me to stay true to your word. Lord, I pray that you would use it this morning to draw us closer to you, to strengthen us in our faith. Lord, may through your word desire to give glory and honor unto you. And I do pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing that perhaps even this morning they repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we come in Acts chapter 19, Paul is into his third missionary journey now. It's already beginning. It basically really timelines, but at a pretty short furlough in between the second and third missionary journey. So we're launching out into that. And we, we really don't know who all was with him at this time just by way of background, but it, it is most likely at the very least that Timothy is with him, as we're going to see Timothy is present at the end of this. And we know from verse 1 on his travels, he went through the upper coast there of the region, which would have been where Derby and Lystra were, where Timothy is even from. So it's likely, because Paul just did not travel alone unless it was essential for some reason. And so it's likely that Timothy is actually still with him right now. Uh, now, last week, we looked at this man, Apollos. Again, he's one of, as far as a secondary character in the Word of God, he is one of my favorite. A man who there's not a whole lot said about him in the Word of God, but yet a man who is used greatly of the Lord. A man who had a, a passion for the Word of God. And we looked at it, we saw that, that he was diligent. And what it meant by that was he stayed exact. He wanted to stay true to God's Word. And, and he is considered uh, by most to perhaps be the, the greatest preacher during the first century was actually Apollo. So anyhow, we looked at his life and, and how Paul came across this man and, and, or not Paul, excuse me, Aquila and Priscilla did, and they began to instruct him and teach him. We saw his humility. And um, anyhow, this week now, as Paul is coming into Ephesus, he's fulfilling the promise that he made, and we come across these 12 men. Twelve men, similar to Apollos, in that they had heard at least some disciples of John the Baptist preach. They were twelve Jewish men, and they think that they are saved. They think they're good. Um, but, as the, but as we're going to see as we go through the text, they are not. They're not converted. There are many people who believe they are saved, but are not. They think they're good. Um, and, uh, and there's different groups within that. We're not dealing at all with those who doubt. We're dealing with those who really have no doubt who think, no, I'm good. I'm all right. I, 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 I might even say things like, I know what I believe. I know why I believe it and all that's good. But yet there's multitudes of those who are actually still lost and have never truly been converted. 
within that group of people that would fall under that, there are those who are generally seeking truth that just need more knowledge, which is the group of these 12 men we have right here. I, I, I could include myself in that group, being younger, um, coming up in the Catholic Church, having a genuine desire for God, responding to the light that had been given to me. I thought I was all right. But then the Lord put me in a place where I came across, went to church with my cousins to that Baptist church, and, and hearing this preach about going to heaven, all of a sudden, I didn't know. I, I went from that assurance to not knowing if I was, and then that conversation that I had with Pastor John Norris, and I realized how much I truly did need Christ. And I still remember that day from the, it clicking exactly what Christ did for me, the understanding coming in that this is what it was about. Even before he finished, I already had the tears coming down, and, and him then asking, man, would you like to place your faith in Christ? Yes, I would. I understood it. I understood what it meant that he died for me. <clears throat> The truth is, God always knows right where you're at. He knows exactly what's going on in your mind, exactly what you need. Again, today we see these 12 men who truly did desire God and truth, but they didn't have enough knowledge. But what they did know, they believed. And then it's made clear by what takes place that they are in fact converted by the working of God's Spirit. This is also a key text that we need to look at some false doctrine that is, that is taught using this section of Acts 19 as a proof text. And so I will be jumping into that as far as this thing you might have heard, such as second blessing. And of course, touching on biblical tongues. I won't get too much into that. I have an entire series on that. You can look that up online and listen to it. But I will be addressing it uh, since it is in the text today. So, I'm going to break this text down into two key areas. First, we're going to look at the indwelling of the Spirit. And second, indicators of the Spirit. So, let's dive into this. First off, verses 1 through 5, the indwelling of the Spirit. Let's look again what takes place here. Um, and it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, remember, he left Ephesus after Aquila and Priscilla had taught him. And he was strengthening those also at Ephesus. And he has to Corinth. Paul, now starting his third missionary journey, is coming back through. He comes to Ephesus where he arrives, and he finds certain disciples. He said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto, then, uh, unto what then were you baptized? And they said unto him, John's baptism. So there's already issues here with the responses, as we're going to see. Then said, then said Paul, John barely baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people, they should believe on him who should come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So let's take a look at what's taking place right here. We see Paul asking a very serious question. Have ye received the Holy Ghost? He knew when he met these men, something doesn't quite seem right. So what he's doing right now is he's getting to the heart of the matter. He's not just going based on the outward. He's getting to the heart of it because he has concerns. What Paul knew very well is that there was a lot of misunderstanding, especially among Jewish converts and confusion concerning the gospel. And this message will get into why that's the case. So I think often he got into questions like this just to make sure conversion was genuine and conversion was real. So when he was talking with these 12 men, something seemed off. He was concerned. He was concerned that they actually were not converted. So he dives into the questions. 
Again, the question by him asking that one, have you received the Spirit, is showing his concern whether they're truly saved, and their answer confirmed that they were not. One thing this teaches us is that you just don't take the initial answer when talking with somebody, and they tell you, I'm a Christian. You don't. You've got to dig deeper than that. We're going to see in our te- we're going to be looking at later on in Matthew chapter 7 with multitudes standing before the Lord Jesus Christ at judgment day shocked that they were never converted. <clears throat> so John meets these or excuse me so Paul meets these 12 men and he asks the question to see if they were truly converted. Again, their response showed some problems. Some like to say they need these men to be saved, actually, so based on other doctrines that they form out of this. They say well, the word disciple is used, so they must be saved. That simply is not the case. The word disciple means learner or follower, and there are multitudes of times in Scripture where it does not refer to a convert. Look over in Luke chapter 5. Verse 33 says, And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees? But thine, but thine eat and drink. Obviously the disciples of the Pharisees are not converted. Look in John chapter 6. Let's look at disciples of Christ who were not saved. John chapter 6. Verse 66 It says this, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Those were those who were learning and following, but it got to a point they said, no, remember, multitudes thought he was going to establish the kingdom. When they heard some of this hard preaching coming from Christ, they said, you know what, I'm done with this. And there are other places as well where you see the word disciple used, but it's certainly not referring to those who are converted. Again, But there are those who like to say these are saved men. That is primarily, though, those in the charismatic movement because they use this experience to build a doctrine. Now keep in mind, the modern-day charismatic movement that we have been experiencing did not exist at all until about the year 1900. Some of the foundational stuff was taking place at the conclusion of the 1800s, but it really wasn't until, well, 1902 that you start to see it taking foothold. And then it never actually even took off until post-World War II. The Pentecostal movement of our day. This is a proof text they like to use in teaching a couple of different doctrines, how you can get another level of the Spirit. Well, they'll ask the question, have you been baptized in the Spirit? Have you received the second blessing as if there's another level that is to take place? One thing that is important to know when it comes to the Word of God, one, you don't build doctrine on experience. You don't. You build doctrine when the Bible is teaching doctrine. This is the book of Acts. 
It's a historical book of what was taking place in the New Testament, which was very much a transitional time. And you're going to understand what I mean by that in a few minutes. There were multitudes of Jews during this time going through this transition from the shadow, if you will, to the substance. In all of world history, all right, we're going back to the time of the garden to today. The group that was alive for the Jewish converts, anyhow, the group that was alive during that first century, they're the most unique of any other group in the history of the world because they are the ones that had to discern between shadow and substance. What changed and what hasn't? They are the group that is going from this transition from looking forward to the Messiah to looking back to the Messiah. That led to confusion, as we could see. That led to, even even with Peter in Acts chapter 10, with him getting Peter, saying, Listen, Peter, what I have cleansed, call not, uh, um, uh, have cleansed, call not thou uncommon. I mean, it, it just... It was there was so much confusion and misunderstanding that they were trying to understand, okay, what do I hold to and what do I let go of? It was transition in nature. Because of that, we see different things taking place because of this transitionary time frame. Again, the Jews alive and who do convert during this time go from looking forward to looking back. This is the only generation in the history of the world that had to go through that. What we see in our text is not some proof for a second blessing. We know from Scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, at the moment of salvation, we are all baptized by the Spirit of God, every single one of us, at that very moment. The very moment of salvation, the fact of the indwelling of the Spirit of God and sealing you unto the day of redemption is that very act. Even those at Ephesus, where Paul is at when this is taking place. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul is clear how you receive the Spirit of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at verse 13 and 14. In whom you also trusted, speaking of Christ, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So even as he's writing back to the church at Ephesus, we see that you receive the Spirit of God upon belief in the gospel. The very moment somebody repents and places their faith in Christ, we also know this, of course, in the book of Romans, God's Spirit indwells them and seals them unto the day of the redemption. Now, at that time, you got all the Holy Spirit you're going to get. He indwells you. Right then and there. Now, for the Christian... We do have the doctrine of the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is different than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling happens at the moment of salvation. The filling is is not, again, you getting more of the Spirit of God. It's simply the Spirit of God getting more of you. It's as you yield your life unto Him, as you humble yourself, seeking His direction. And 
and e- even within the charismatic movement, and even a danger uh, uh, um, that we see, that we had witnessed even taking place within independent Baptist churches. There, there's a danger with this. See, they like to get it for power and for show. That happened with us, too. That happened within our churches. Much like, remember Acts chapter 8, Simon the Sorcerer? Remember when he saw what was happening through the power of the Holy Spirit? Did he not want that? Yeah, I'm ready to purchase this. What do I need to give you that I can get that power? Now, he wanted that, of course, for selfish reasons. You know, all those are seeking the power of God for their own name, for their own prestige. No different than Simon the Sorcerer. For many, it's about a show. So this takes place, and they answer Paul when he asks the question. They, they're, they're confused. They say, wait, we haven't heard whether there be a Holy Ghost. In other words, they're saying, what are you talking about? And that's a concern for Paul, because they were disciples of John, yet we know from John chapter 1, John preached the Spirit of God. John chapter 1, 32 and 33. It was part of his preaching. So then that's when John comes back and says, well, then wait, what were you baptized unto? Well, John baptized us. And then he responds with, but you, it's, you don't even understand why I baptized you. John was preparing you for the Messiah to come. He was preparing you for this man, Jesus Christ, who would come, and he's been here. <clears throat> I, I, think, I think we could even see, based on... W- other places within the New Testament, confusion taking place with Jews, that, especially those that had heard just John, even some of those who had followed Christ, some confusion that had taken place. Uh, let's see a possible thing that, that these men got confused on. Let's go back to John himself when he was in prison. Remember that? Before he was executed, John was doubting. Remember that? Want to know why he was doubting? We covered this when we went through the Gospel of Matthew. He was covering it because he himself misunderstanding some key doctrine. John, too, thought like multitude, just like the, just like the twelve, the, the kingdom's coming, it's now. And they, think they couldn't quite put it all together, what was taking place, that there was actually going to be this coming of Christ, and then the second coming of Christ, which will establish a literal, physical kingdom on this earth. But they were confused at that. It was hidden, so it's transitionary, and they're hearing this. And even John said, sends his disciples, go and ask him, is it you? Do we look for another? So it's possible these men, with very limited knowledge, not even realizing that this man, Jesus Christ, had been present, alive during those years, are thinking, okay, We know the forerunner has been here, and a kingdom is coming. And at the very least, Paul reminds them about John's preaching, and how really you missed the main point. How John was preaching about the Messiah to come, that you need to place your faith in him. John, getting them ready for Christ, preaches unto them Christ. This was new to them. But make no mistake, when they did hear Paul preach, they could put it all together. Ah, I get it. It makes sense. 
perhaps, and I, I doubt this is the case, I think they were just men lacking knowledge, but nonetheless, we do this see, see this taking place in our day. Some are just followers of men, and that's it. They're not actually followers of God. They're, they're the follower of a charismatic personality. It's about the man and it's not about God. And it certainly wasn't about John. And John was clear on that. He must increase. I must decrease. But many people today can be much more follower of man than they are of God. So we have this group of men who thought they were saved but were not. Again, this is true of multitudes in our day. Of those who think they have been converted but are actually lost. And these men, as we see, they were simply among that group who did respond to the light that was given to them positively. And here's God knowing right where they're at in his sovereignty, bringing Paul right to these 12 men. And then they get the knowledge they need and they don't hesitate. They put their faith in Christ. There are some, though, who believe they are saved and are not, not because simply they're lacking uh, um, more knowledge. Some are simply deceived from false doctrine, and they think they're fine. Multitudes are deceived by false doctrine, and they think they're saved. I mean, we can think of the multitudes right now that are trusting in baptism to save them. Again, we have a baptism again this week. But the water of Anchorage does not wash away your sin. It is the blood of Christ. It is the picture of what should have already taken place. It's your profession of saying, I believe Jesus died for me, was buried, and rose again. Which, by the way, a pouring or a sprinkling doesn't picture that. <clears throat> there are those who are, multitudes of those who are trusting in their own ability to follow God as a means of salvation. Now, let's go over to Matthew chapter 7. This is at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is one of the... The devil is a master. We know this from 1 Corinthians. of keeping people blinded. Lest the glorious light of the gospel should shine unto them. So he'll use different twists of doctrine. And one of his key methods is, is convincing people, you're okay. You're all right. But boy, when you begin to see that light of the gospel, you need to respond to it. Matthew chapter 7, we have something taking place here. This is Christ referring to what will take place on Judgment Day. Look at verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and thy name cast out devils, and thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Here is a group that Jesus Christ specifically brings up of, of, of what's going to happen to them on Judgment Day. A group that thought they were converted. A group who's there at the great right throne of judgment and they are just stunned. I don't get it. Why am I here? I was a pastor. I was a teacher. I, I was faithful to church. I never missed. I did good things. I mean, look at, look at their, 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 by the way, their own mouth condemns them. I don't understand why I'm here. I prophesied in thy name. I preached in your name. I did many wonderful works in your name. None of that is salvation. None of it. 
It's not you preaching in Christ's name that saves you from judgment. It's not you doing good works that saves you from judgment. That's why Christ said, and notice what he said, it's important. He said, I never knew you. Not, I knew you at one point. That's another false doctrine that I'm not going to get into right now. He said, I never knew you. They were trusting in what they did. That's not salvation. Salvation, God doesn't save you because you join a church. God doesn't save you because you don't miss a church service. God doesn't save you because you've been baptized. God doesn't save you because you turned over a new leaf. You had better humbly come before God, realizing you are a sinner who has broken his law, and the almighty, holy, just God will judge you. And you are guilty. The only way out of that, there is one way, one way. There's not two ways, there's not three ways. There's not a Baptist way, a Methodist way, a a Catholic way, a Mormon way, a Muslim way. There is one way. And that is through what Jesus Christ did in order to save us from that judgment. That's what you have to be saved from. There is only one in all of history who did something to save you from that judgment. That was God himself becoming a man 2,000 years ago. You say, well, how does that save me? God became a man. He walked on this earth 30-some years. And you know what? He was perfect. The only one. The only one who ever lived the perfect life. I think all would agree with that. Then follow me then. That means that for all of human history, he is the only one as a man can go to the judgment day and the father could say these words, you're innocent. He's it. Not another person ever. Not Adam, not Eve, not Abel, not Cain, not Seth. That's as far as I know, all the seven billion people names in a row. Not one. He's it. But he lived that perfect life for you. You see, the Bible teaches, we heard the phrase that Jesus died for you, but we just don't understand it today. We don't get how a man who died 2,000 years ago has anything to do with our salvation right now. Listen to me. The Bible says, speaking of uh, of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross... It says this, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What that verse is teaching us is this, that when he went to that cross, God placed upon his perfect son, the sinless one, as it said, our sin. As if he was the liar, as if he was the coveter, as if he was the murderer, as if he was the adulterer. He became sin for us. And the Father judged him in your place to satisfy justice. Because God is just. But get this, hell did not hold the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. He defeated death and rose again. God judges you and you go to hell, you're not coming out. You're not God. At the same time that verse says he takes our sin, know what else it says? He gives us his righteousness. He gives us his perfect life. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. If that takes place, if he takes all of your sin upon himself and pays your judgment, and he gives you his perfect life, do you understand what that means? That when you stand before God, it looks as if you are perfect. 
you are justified. It is the only means of salvation. You don't have your own thing worked out with God. It's not what God knows I'm basically a pretty good person. No, you're not seeing yourself as you really are. Your, your own heart is deceived. You are wicked and vile, and you're going to be judged of a holy and righteous God, and you need salvation. That is only found in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And what he did on the cross, he offers through his grace as a gift. That if you, through repentance and faith, put your faith in him, he will save you. <clears throat> so these men here, Paul, talk about the one that was to come. And Paul, no doubt, tell him, he's been here. Paul probably had given his own testimony. Oh, and they hear that. And they understand. And by the way, of course, they get baptized right then and there. This is, this is an example of men who sort of got baptized twice, but they really did not. The first time, they just got wet. Baptism comes after conversion. That's when you get baptized. That's when that takes place. It comes after conversion. So now, let's get into the second point and the last point. Indicators of the Spirit. In this case, indicators, they got it. They are now converted. Let's look at the last two verses here that we read. says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came, up, uh, came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Again, we're in this transitionary time. These 12 Jews who just got converted, um, they're, they're going to see the evidence in themselves. The Apostle Paul is going to see it, that they truly did get saved. Conversion has, in fact, happened. They're going to see the evidence by the working of the Holy Spirit in their life immediately taking place. By the way, there's a great lesson for us, which is very true. When true conversion takes place, when true salvation is present, a changed life happens and a desire to proclaim the gospel. These men were ready to preach the gospel immediately. There's something wrong when you claim conversion and you have no desire to give the gospel out. Again, these men were changed and it was clear. I believe these 12 men, by the way, will become foundational at the church at Ephesus. The evidence of their salvation and true conversion now hits. They speak in tongues. They see it. Paul sees it. So what is this? So what is taking place and why don't we do that? First, let's discuss that right now and make this very clear so there's no ambiguity about this. So that you can leave with understanding. One, you have to know this. The tongues, the word tongues that we see in the charismatic movement, are not even remotely close to what we see in scripture and biblical tongues. Biblical tongues was the spirit, God's spirit, given the ability to speak in a foreign language that you had no knowledge of. It was never a gibberish talk. And I'll come back to that. It occurs a grand total in Scripture that we see it taking place three times. Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, that's it. 
Two of the three are major events where it was essential during this transitional time it took place. And we see it's essential for these men, confused a little bit as to what John was preaching, what's here at, at, during the time of transition. So Acts 2 was enormous. Day of Pentecost. Day of Pentecost. It was going to hit. Acts chapter 10, another Peter needed to see it take place. Because now for the first time, you now have a Gentile convert that, that somebody other than the Lord Jesus Christ reached. And then again in here in Acts chapter 19. We know exactly why biblical tongues was given. Look over in Isaiah chapter 28. This is the prophecy of this spiritual gift that would be given. When Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, was teaching on biblical tongues, he referenced this passage as it referring to what they see taking place in the first century. I'm going to quote, I'm going to read first, excuse me, from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 21 and 22. In the law, we're going to read this portion here, it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. And yet for all this, that, uh, uh, that will they, uh, uh, excuse me, let me read that again. And yet for all that will, uh, all will they not hear me, uh, saith the Lord. So they're not going to respond. This is going to take place. It's a sign. It's an indicator. Yet they still will not hear the Lord. Verse 22, Paul follows up with this. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, uh, uh, but for them which believe. Now, he's referencing what was written here in Isaiah 28. Look in verse 11. For with stammering lips and with another tongue will he speak to this people. So we have to figure out who this people is. That this is what it's all about. To whom he said, this is the rest wherewith he may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing. Um, yet they would not hear. This is what Paul was referencing. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, uh, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. That they might go... And fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people. So it's answering the question now from verse 11, who it's talking about. Which is in, where? Jerusalem. Tongues, here being prophesied, a day would come when it would take place. The ability to speak in another language, Acts 2 even lists the languages, and I'll get to another point. When Paul taught on it, he directly said, it's another language of the earth. That the day would come that this would happen, and it's a sign, basically, that truth had come, or in this case, the Messiah, and you rejected. That when they see this taking place, that men have this ability to speak in another... Remember, at this time, if you spoke in another language, you didn't say, oh, he speaks a foreign language. You said what? He spoke another tongue. Because we don't word it that way here in the year 2022. We understand it differently when we read it. That was part of the confusion the devil used to create an entire false doctrine. So this would come, and so... 
the, the Jews would recognize when this ability hits, you've rejected the Messiah. Truth and judgment is coming. But this is consistent throughout Scripture. Jeremiah talked about you know, another, another tongue, another language that you're going to hear coming. Jeremiah was referring to that of the Babylonian. Isaiah was too. Babylonian. Deuteronomy, Moses talked about that. It was always an indicator of judgment. Each time. No different with this. So in Acts chapter 2, when you now see it occurring, it's happening. Acts 2, they hear it. You better believe, just like Paul, he understood the prophecy that was given. Wait. How we hear these men in our own language? Peter doesn't know my language. How is he doing this? <laughs> Truth had come. And you rejected it. And judgment will fall. And it did. Jerusalem was destroyed. It was a sign that when this would take place, Truth had come, you rejected, which they did. So Paul ties this in to 1 Corinthians 14, 21, how tongues are assigned to the unbelieving Jews. All three times that tongues occurs, guess who's present? Jewish men. All three times. It's what it's about. It was a foreign language to the nation of Israel about you rejecting truth and judgment is coming. And you know what we see taking place again in AD 70? The judgment falls. And by the close of the first century, you no longer have instances of it taking place again. Why? 1 Corinthians 13 will answer that. And I'll, I'll come back to that in just a second. I'll probably just briefly mention it for time's sake here is all that I'm going to do. So, the biblical gift of tongues was never some gibberish language. We see in Acts 2. Now, look over in 1 Corinthians 14. I want you to see this where Paul said that directly. Here he is teaching on biblical tongues. In verse 10, he says, There are, it may be so. So many kinds of voices in the world, the different languages, and none of them is without signification. And he goes on, but if you can't understand what's being said, what further? Because what was happening is the gift of tongues at this time, which was still present when Paul is writing this, men were like, they were using it for sinful purposes, their own pride. Look what I can do. And Paul's saying, you know what? Listen, you're missing the point of this. You're using this all wrong. And that's what he's going to get into later on. This was a sign for the unbelieving Jews, and you're just using it to show off. And he, like he says in verse, in verse 10, just, yes, there's a lot of languages in the world. You have the gift of the Spirit. He's given you the ability to speak some of these, but it's not for you to show off with. Use it in the right way. I mean, and think about this. On the day of Pentecost, this is the first time any of them had ever heard God glorified in a Gentile language. Think of the significance of that. And let's face it. This is true. Follow me here with this. Anybody can speak a gibberish language. You don't need the work of the Spirit. I could do it right now. I could. But for you to speak fluently in a foreign language... That's the work of the Spirit. Anybody can speak a gibberish. Anybody. 
So, why we're there, let's look over 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There were certain sign gifts that were given by God during this transitionary time that are done away with. They serve their purpose, and they are done. 1 Corinthians chapter... Oop, I'm in Isaiah. I thought I was there. Let me jump over there. Let's look at a couple of verses here. Let me start back in verse 8. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part... Verse 10, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So the issue, what is verse 10 talking about? Now, multitudes will be able to keep tongues in place, so that's referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ, so we're still good till then. No, Jesus is not a that. He's not. It doesn't say when he which is perfect is come. Notice what, notice what the indicators, you know, you know what those men did not have at that time frame, those 12 men? You know what they did not have? They did not have a single book of the New Testament. Not one. They couldn't go there. They could not go to the completed revelation of God's word. It was not possible. But that wasn't far off. I mean, over the next, from this time right now, over the next 50 years, and it's getting ready to start, right? It's getting ready to take place. Actually, two have been written already. I take that back. By this time, two, two books of the New Testament have been written um, by Paul. That's going to be 1 Thessalonians. That's going to be um, probably James has already sent his out at this time. But by the completion over the next 50 years, it would be completed. It would be done. You now have the ability to go to the Word of God when that which is perfect has come. You no longer need that because now what we can go to is God's Word, which is so much better. <clears throat> That's why, by the way, which that fits exactly with what we see in world history. That at the conclusion of the first century, there's no evidence of it. Well, that's just because they, they just stopped. Oh, yeah, I'm sure, that's, I'm sure that's why. Yeah, they just, yeah, let's stop it. No, because that which is perfect had arrived. The Word of God, it was there. You never see it again, listen to me, till 1902. 1902 is the next time you see it. And it didn't happen in a church, by the way. It happened in Topeka, Kansas, at a Bible school. It was a woman who spoke it for the first time. That's where it's pronounced, we have it, but it was a gibberish language. She wasn't speaking in a foreign language like we see Acts 2, 10, and 19, which is the only three occurrences that you have it. Acts 2, Pentecost, Acts 10, the conversion of a Gentile, Acts 19, with these 12 men in transition, confused. So you see it taking place, and then it just got proclaimed, but it was just a gibberish. That's all it was. By the way, you can look in the Old Testament and look at those who spoke gibberish languages. It's there. It's there. Again, the movement almost completely died out by World War II. After World War II, though, it, it really took off and launched. And there's, 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 it's, it's fascinating history of all that was taking place. It's actually a businessman that really helped launch it. 
um, at that time. And it took off. Again, this is why you don't see it happening again after the conclusion of the first century. Because John was the one who finished up the canon of Scripture with the book of Revelation. It was the last one written. And then you don't see it. Why? Because that which is perfect has come. And there's two events that took place. Not only the, There's two things that had to line up, both line up perfectly with it. The completion of Scripture... And the judgment, which was the indicator of the sign to the unbelieving Jews, had fallen. They lost their nation. Judgment hit. It was a sign. Who does the Bible say it was a sign to? To this people. That's Scripture. That's what it is. It's right there. Now, back to as I conclude this message. You had 12 men. The knowledge they heard, they responded positively to. But it wasn't quite enough. They knew, they knew when they heard John's disciples more than likely, perhaps John himself, but more than likely John's disciples. We just don't know. That what they heard, they believed, all right, there, there is a Messiah coming, but there's much they lacked. I mean, John himself preaching about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost, and yet they're like, wait, we, don't, we haven't even heard of this. What are you talking about? And Paul knew. Oh, you, there's more you need to know. Listen to me. And boy, when they heard that, they got it. They got it. They said, oh, yes, I understand. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you thought salvation was in your baptism or in your good works or in a church. It's not. It's only in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you repent and place your faith in Christ, he will save you. And there is nothing more important than that. Nothing. With heads bowed and eyes closed.